Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful worship this morning. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3. Last week we began a sermon series in 1 Samuel entitled Making Kings. In our first sermon, in the early chapters of this book, we opened with Elkanah having two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. Peninnah, Penny, had children, and Hannah had none. Elkanah loved Hannah more than he loved Penny, and you can imagine the tension in that household. Penny was jealous because Hannah was loved the most, and Hannah was jealous because Penny had all the children. In the midst of that bitter conflict, chapter 1, verse 11, Hannah cries out to God, Please remember me. If you give me a son, I will give him back to you to serve you all the days of his life. And as she's saying that prayer, the priest comes in. Eli says, may God grant your petition. Hannah had asked to be remembered. Then look at chapter 1 and verse 19. And the Lord remembered her. She asked, God remembered. As the family made their annual trek to Shiloh for the feast, the festival, and the sacrifice, why, Hannah stayed back for three, four, maybe five years saying, whenever Samuel is weaned, I will take him and leave him at the temple for good. But until then, we won't go. Well, look at chapter 1, verse 27. She takes him for good. For this boy I prayed, she's speaking to the temple, and the Lord has given my petition, which I ask of him, so I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he has dedicated the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. In chapter 2, we have Hannah's song where she celebrates that God has heard her cry and God has remembered her. And then we learn in, in chapter 2 and verse 12 that Eli has bad, bad boys. The ones who were to follow him in the priesthood, they did not know the Lord. The sons of Eli were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. Now, that's not what you want to hear about your priest, is it your future priest. Number one, that they are worthless, and number two, they do not know the Lord. The next few verses, he describes how the sons of Eli would actually steal from the sacrifices. They would take from the offering plate in today's terms. They did not honor God's instructions with the offering. Now, in verse 18 of chapter 2, we have a comparison. The sons of Eli are bad boys, 18. Now, Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And God remembers Hannah, verse 21, and she has three more sons and two daughters. Well, what a comparison. The narrator wants you to see the comparison between the bad boys of Eli and Samuel, who is a miracle of God, chosen by God, and given back to God. Now look at verse 24, chapter 2. I hear bad things, Eli says to his sons, to the people about you boys. Now, boys, the report is not good. Verse 26, the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor with both the Lord and with men. The people don't like Eli's sons. They're bad boys. But Samuel is growing in God 
and with men. And all of a sudden, we have a very little-known biblical story. Many of you probably never heard of the story until this morning that there is a, a prophet. There's a man. He is nameless. He comes upon the scene, and he says to Eli, let me summarize the message. I chose your family to be my priest, but your boys are stealing the best part of the offering. I said, verse 30, your family would be my priest forever, but not now. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Verse 34, a hard word. And this will be a sign that the priesthood is leaving your family. The two bad boys, Hophni and Phinehas, will both die on the same day. End of the lineage and line of Eli and his priests. Your boys will die on the same day. But verse 35, chapter 2, I will raise up for myself a new priest who will do according to what's in my heart and in my soul, God says, and I will give him an everlasting house, and he will walk before my anointed ways. As we enter chapter 3 and verse 1, look. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, but a word of the Lord was rare in those days, and visions were infrequent. As we begin chapter 3, we realize we have one of these periods of silence in Scripture. We have that sometimes, don't we? A word from the Lord is rare in those days. Visions are infrequent. Like from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus, you have about 400 years when God doesn't seem to have very much to say between Genesis and Exodus. Or between the Old Testament and the New Text, we have all these years of silence until finally John the baptizer comes on the scene as the mouthpiece and the voice of God. The first thing I want you to see in, in 1 Samuel 3 is this. Sometimes God seemed silent. A word from the Lord was rare in those days, and visions were infrequent. God sometimes seems silent. Maybe you've had those periods in your own life, those long stretches where all you hear is the silence of God those periods where there is no sense that he's really with us at all. Even Mother Teresa in her diary described a long period of time in which she was receiving no word, had no sense of the presence or existence of God. Mother Teresa didn't say anything the saints had long said before, Job 30, 20. I cry unto you for help, Job says, and you don't answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. Job says, I cry out to you, God, and I hear no word back. Or King David, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, and I find no rest. C.S. Lewis, following the death of his wife, Joy, made an observation about the, the silence, the absence of God, he writes in his grief. Meanwhile, where is God? 
When you're happy, so happy, you have no sense of needing God. If you remember yourself to turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But you go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face, the sound of a bolting and a double bolting on the inside. And after that silence, you might as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence of God becomes. C.S. Lewis. Maybe you've been there. When you speak to God and all you hear in the empty cavern is the echo of your own voice. Psalm 42 says, as a deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you. Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. My tears have been my flood day and night while men say to me, where is your God? Where is he? Here's someone in Psalm hungering for God, the songwriter, that season where he's calling out for God in the midst of his pain and his tears, and God is silent to his cries, so much so his friends say, hey, 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 where's that God of yours anyway? But the psalmist continues in Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I remember you. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. What the psalmist is saying is sometimes the silence of God isn't silence at all. Rather, God is present, and he's saying something too deep for words as deep calls to deep. Maybe it's not silence, but that prompting pregnant pause to engage us in personal reflection so we can have not a light, the most profound of all responses from God. I found an article in Fast Company as a chess master, Bruce Pandolfini, he's a sought-after mentor in the game of chess. And this is the way the master says he works with his students. My lessons consist of a lot of silence. I listen to other teachers, and they're always talking. I let my students think. If I do ask a question and they don't get the right answer, I'll rephrase the question and I'll wait. I'll never give them the answer. Most of us don't really appreciate the power of silence. Some of the most effective communication between a student and a teacher, between master players, takes place during the long, silent periods. Is God like that chess master mentoring us as a master teacher during the long periods of silence? Later, Lewis wrote, I had gradually been coming to feel that the door was no longer shut and bolted. I was like the drowning man who can't be helped because he clutches and he grabs. I was so desperate to hear a word from God in my grief. I was grabbing and clutching, and God was trying to save me in a silent way. Sometimes God seems silent. The second thing I want you to see, we're not always expecting the call of God. 
I kind of picture it this way. It's bedtime for the boy. All is quiet. It's in the wee morning hours when kind of reality and dream life kind of come together and you're not sure which is which. And Samuel hears, Samuel, Samuel, here I am. He runs to Eli. What do you want? I didn't call you. Now go back to bed. Again, Samuel, Samuel, here I am, Eli. I know you called me this time. What do you need? I didn't call you, son. Go back to bed. Samuel, Samuel, Eli, Eli, ah, it's the Lord. You kind of get the idea of, you know how your children play those games at night to get out of bed? I mean, they finally hit the all-powerful hydration button. I need a glass of water. I mean, what kind of parent are you if you deny your child water at night? They need hydration. Children have learned you can't say no to the hydration, you know? Give the kids some water. When nothing else works, the water works. I, I remember one time when Ryan, now 24, was a preschooler. She came, and you know you can just feel them beside your bed. Nobody has to say a word. You just feel, you can tell which child it is with your eyes shut. You feel that presence, and there's a tap. It's worse. I rather she, rather she shout, there's that little tap. And you're trying to stay in your dream world, and you feel that tap. What is it, Ryan? There's an ant in my bed. Okay, I get up, I go to Ryan's bedroom. Of course, the ant has disappeared miraculously between my trip. And so I put her back in the bed. Ryan, I look high and low. There is no ant. I get back in bed. It is probably about an hour later. He's back, Dad. <laughs> Who's back, Ryan? The ant's back, Dad. It went on three or four times, this disappearing ant. I would go and I would search, and you thought, it, you know, if it had been a rabid raccoon or a cougar or something, I'd have been ready to respond, but we're talking about an ant. Just squash the ant, Ryan. You don't need my help. That's the way it was with Eli and Samuel. Eli trying to rest, and Samuel always hearing his voice. Verse 10. The Lord came and stood and called out other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, as Eli instructed, speak, for your servant is listening. Here's the third thing I want you to see. When God calls, we must respond. When God calls, we must respond. What is the right response? Verse 4, verse 6, verse 8, the same response. Here I am. Verse 4, verse 6, verse 8. When God calls you the right response, you shouldn't have a question. The Old Testament response is, here I am. What did Abraham say when God called him out of the Earl of the Chaldees? Here I am. What was Abraham's response when he had the dagger drawn about to plunge it within his son and the angel calls to stop him? Here I am. What did Isaiah say in Isaiah chapter 6 when he was in the temple and the, the temple was shaking at the power of God and the train of God filled the temple? Here I am, Lord Send me. There's only one response when God calls. Here I am, and Samuel says it every time. Here I am. Do you hear the words? God's people don't always say, here I am. 
The word came and he went in another direction. God said, cry tears of compassion, tears of repentance. Cry against the reek of unrighteousness. Cry for the right turn of a contrite spirit. And Jonah rose and left in tearless silence. People always say, here I am. Jonah didn't say, here I am. The right response is, here I am. C.S. Lewis made a profound division amongst all of humanity. Listen to what he said. The world is divided into two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, all right then, have it your way. All of humanity is divided into two kinds of people. Those who say to God, here I am, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, all right then, have it your way. Those who won't answer his call. Sometimes we are afraid to listen to God. It reminds me of Marjorie Kellogg's tell me that you love me, Junie Moon. Junie declares, the trouble, Arthur, with you is that you seldom listen to me, and when you do, you don't hear, and when you do hear, you hear wrong, and even when you do hear right, you change it so fast, it's never the same. Do you listen to God? Do you listen rightly? Here I am. Sometimes God calls into full-time ministry, but as Baptists, there's not a big difference between God's call on my life and God's call on your life, and don't try to make it so, because it isn't. Whatever you do in life, whether you're a maintenance man or a banker, whether you work in the hospital or you work in the schoolhouse, the number one calling on your life is to be a follower of Jesus. Everything else is secondary. Your calling is absolutely as authentic and real as mine. Your answer, like mine, like Samuel's, has to be, here I am. What do you want me to do? Do you listen to the words of a song that we sang a moment ago? Will you come and follow me if I but call your name? Will you go where you don't know and never be the same? Will you leave yourself behind if I but call your name? Will you care for the cruel and the kind and never be the same? Sometimes God calls us to do the very thing we thought we'd never do. Fourthly, sometimes God calls us to the very thing that other people do better than we. Sometimes God calls us to do the very thing that people do better than we. I don't care whether you preach or you sing or you serve or you teach Sunday school, there will always be somebody somewhere who can do it better than you can because God calls you to do it anyway. William Willimon, when he was a professor in seminary, had a first-year divinity student, a woman who was in the seminary. She informed her professor, Dr. Willimon, that once again her paper would be late 
The professor said to her, you're going to be a minister, and ministers must be punctual. You can't stand up on Sunday and say, I hope to have a sermon for you today, but first one thing and then another. So instead of having a sermon, we're going to break up into buzz groups this morning and talk about the text. You can't do that when you're in the church. I agree with you, the student said. I have very few obvious gifts for ministry. I'm always late. I'm way too old. I have no business being in seminary. I've told that, God, told that to God repeatedly. My being here is God's idea, not mine. Upon reflection, the seminary professor said, maybe she's right. We are in ministry and service to God in God's world because... We've been, called, we've been called and put here by God who loves to show that he can make something out of, out of nothing. Here's a, here's a fifth thing I want you to see. God doesn't always call us to do an easy thing. God doesn't always call us to do an easy thing. Do you remember what he says to Samuel, that first conversation between God and Samuel? And oh, there'll be so many as we go through the book. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do something in Israel which will make everybody's ears tingle. And that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house. From the beginning to the end, I have told him that I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Here I am, Lord. What's the Lord say? I'm going to put a curse on Eli's house. And eliminate his sons. Samuel, I imagine, stayed up all night knowing Eli is going to want to talk to him in the morning. Look at 316. Then Eli called Samuel. Samuel, my son, he replied as he had before, here I am. Do you notice the change? Did you feel that right there? God normally spoke to whom? To Eli. And Samuel, before that night, is going to Eli to get the word of God. Did you feel that? Now, Eli goes to Samuel and says, what does God have to say? It happened right there. If you're reading the text, you have to feel the shift. No longer does Samuel go to Eli for thus saith the Lord God Almighty. Now Eli goes to Samuel, and Eli knows it's a hard word, and he says, don't hold anything back. Tell me exactly what God said. Samuel is honest in his first message from God. He gives the bad news to Eli, and Eli says, 318, well, he is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. A.W. Tozer said, God is said to be absolutely free because no one and no thing can hinder him or compel him or stop him. He is able to do as he pleases always, everywhere, forever. And then the story concludes in chapter 3, as we're told. Look at verse 19. Thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord let none of his words fail. What about you? What about God's calling on your life? 
I know what Samuel did. Samuel said, here I am. But what about you? I don't care what you do for a living. I don't care what you do to buy your bread. All that is is a ministry station where God has placed you to be his salt and his light. You are called primarily to be a follower of Jesus just like I am. You are stationed in a place, in a mission field, to be the presence of the kingdom of God amongst those with whom you work. Everything else is secondary to your faithful answer to the call of God upon your life. Maybe teaching your Sunday school lessons the most important thing you do all week long. The world is divided into two kinds of people. Those who say, here I am, God. I'm listening. Thy will be done in my life. And those, those to whom God says, okay then. Have it your way. I know which one Samuel is. Which one are you? Let us pray. God, you place a call on the life of every one of your children. There is no small call from God. Whether the voice is quiet or loud, it's as thunderous upon our lives as the call of Samuel was upon his, or Isaiah, or Abraham. May we all be in the group that says, here I am, send me. Maybe this morning, God is a morning for you to place a call of salvation on someone's life and maybe watching by way of television or maybe here in this great sanctuary, there's someone right now who needs to answer that call. Here I am, I want to be your child. I want the crucifixion of Christ to be my death and his resurrection to be my glory. Maybe there are others who are called to say, here I am. I'll be numbered amongst the disciples at First Baptist who both hear and do the Word of God. In the name of Jesus, we pray.